Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original true crime stories. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a true crime documentary or series, and I talk to the people who made them. We dive deep into the backstories and get answers to questions raised by what we just watched. This week, we're launching another special six-part mini-season on the return of Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 2. I'll be talking with director Don Argot. We break down episode one, Washington Insider Murder, about the unexplained death of former White House aide John Wheeler. Now we turn to a just-discovered murder that has stunned a lot of this nation's veterans and those who knew the victim. His name was John Wheeler. Jack's murder has all these facts around it that just naturally confound as of this point, there are no suspects. We will continue to bring you break. It was big news at the time. Detectives are still baffled this morning by the murder of a former White House aide. Very sensational case. So we're going to turn now to a murder that's mystifying official Washington. Body found in a landfill, and you just think to yourself, that's a targeted murder. Sounds like something the mob would do. Nobody ever intended this person to be found. Police discovered the body last Friday morning at a landfill and over the weekend officially identified the victim as John Wheeler. So the sensational aspects of Jack's murder were what first attracted me. But you could say that, you know, I, I came for the murder but ended up staying for the man, right? Because he lived a really fascinating life. Let me now introduce to you Mr. John Wheeler. A few notes to listeners. This episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch the entire episode one of volume two of Unsolved Mysteries before listening on. Before you hear my discussion with Don, here's a conversation I had with Unsolved Mysteries co-creator and executive producer Terry Dunmuir. We'll get the inside story on reactions, viewer tips, and updates to the first set of cases covered in volume one. Terry, welcome back to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. Well, it's been a few months since Volume 1 was released this summer. The show is a huge success. First of all, congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. There's been a ton of audience engagement, social media discussions, of course, tips from viewers. Before we talk about you know, what's happened with the cases, can you just give us a scope of how many tips, how many calls? like How big has the reaction been to the series? We have had over 4,000 tips or comments come in from the launch of Volume 1. We were just overwhelmed. We had a, a staff just trying to work through all of the tips and the comments to make sure that we got the tips to law enforcement as quickly as we could. But there, were, there was a lot of viewer engagement. Now, how do you sift through all of that? Like, who's working on sifting through? Because I'm sure some are speculative, and I'm sure some may feel like they have some meat on them. Whose job is it to do that? And how do you guys actually start doing that when you get all those tips in? We have a team that handles all the tips that come into our website, and they log each tip and then forward anything that looks like a viable tip onto law enforcement. A lot of times, the information that comes in isn't a lead that law enforcement can work with. It's just more of a comment, and those aren't tips that we forward on. But mm. anything that looks like a viable tip, we, we forward on right away. The stories in Volume 1 were all pretty different from one another. What do you think it was about that story selection in particular that connected with so many viewers and elicited so much response? 
I think it was the variety of the stories. We had an unexplained death story. We had a murder case. We had a wanted fugitive. We had a UFO case. And I always believe that the Unsolved Mysteries viewers really appreciate the variety of stories that we that we offer. You know, with all the variety of the types of stories you tell, do you have a favorite that you think is particularly well-suited to the format of the show? I think the unexplained death stories are the most intriguing and also the most baffling. Um, the Ray Rivera case in volume one was an unexplained death story, and that actually had the most viewer engagement of all the episodes because people were really just trying to solve that case and figure out what happened. I think those are the most complicated cases. So those are the cases that I probably gravitate toward just because they are such intense mysteries. Right. And they're probably in some ways, I don't want to say the most solvable, but I think the cases could advance more with stories like that because there might be a witness or something who was hesitant to come forward before or perhaps didn't know what they saw or heard was important, right? That's right. One of the interesting things about the tips that came in were that in isolation, one tip might be something where you think, oh, I don't know if that's really anything. But then if you put three tips together, they kind of add up into a scenario or a story or a theory that, oh, maybe maybe that's what happened there. So we're always looking for people to come forward with any tip, no matter how small they think it might be, because that little piece of information might add on to other pieces of information that we've received, and that creates a bigger picture hmm. for the uh, solve on the case. Can you update us on any leads in the first set of six cases and, and where they might stand now? Well, the Rivera case, uh, a lot of people reached out to the two reporters, Jane Miller and Stephen Janis. They reached out to them directly. We got a lot of tips in and forwarded them as well. But they're right now running down some leads. They have information that they believe rules out that Ray fell or jumped or was pushed off the roof, um, that he did not come off the roof. And they're, they're also trying to figure out where the suicide theory came from. There is absolutely no evidence that Ray would have committed suicide. And, and they're trying to understand why the police department went down the suicide road as quickly as they did after Ray's body was found. That was a question I really had about that episode as well, because they, they seem to have drawn that line between, you know, the note they found behind Ray's computer and it being a suicide note, which that didn't track to me at all. That's not what it seemed like to me in any way. No, there was no evidence that Ray was depressed or had any issues. The fact that he ran out the house that day like he was running off to meet somebody, that's not what people do when they're suicidal and when they're going to kill themselves, from our experience. Um, so, the, But the police did jump in right away and just decide that it was a suicide. The case was ruled undetermined by the medical examiner, but no investigation happened after Ray's body was found. It just the case just evaporated. So it's it's still an open case. It's a it's in their cold case division because it was ruled an unexplained death. And the medical examiner wouldn't rule it a suicide because there was no evidence that it was a suicide. So that's one of the things that Jane and Stephen are are following up on right now and trying to pull together all all the all the leads and all the tips that have come in. Yeah, there were also some unexplained injuries in that case too that I remember um, watching the episode. We never really got a sense at all that anybody could point to why he had those injuries on his legs, for instance, that we saw in that medical examiner's report. So that was fascinating to me. What about other cases? Have there been any leads that have led to advances in any of the other five episodes? 
in the Alonzo Brooks case, the FBI's received a lot of tips directly, and then we've forwarded tips on as well. And those their agents are conducting interviews every week. And Alonzo's body was exhumed in late July by the FBI, and they're doing a thorough forensic review right now by what they, I don't know the names of the people, but what they describe as world-class experts. So they are really digging into that case and they're, they're very hopeful that that case can be solved. It takes a long time for investigators to put together a case against a suspect and, and to make sure that it's an airtight case before they can, can try to prosecute that case or make an arrest. So we are hopeful that the FBI has some strong leads and some strong suspects in the Alonzo Brooks case. Yeah, there were a lot of potential witnesses there, too. I think about that case all the time. I mean, sort of the timeliness of the story being told there and, you know, that small town dynamic and how people don't want to maybe talk about something they saw because it involves people that they might see at the gas station or the supermarket all the time. And it's complicated when you're not just dealing with a race-based crime, potentially, but also a small town crime. It's a very different dynamic, right? Right, right. Um, That, um, I think, has made the case more difficult in terms of interviewing witnesses. Nobody wants to say anything because it is a very small town and they don't want any information to, to come back to them. We know there were so many people at that party that night and somebody knows something. At this point, it doesn't seem like there's, unless something comes out of the exhumation analysis, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of forensic evidence that can be dug up at this point. So it really comes down to the witnesses and people coming forward to say, this is what I saw. Right. And sometimes those motivations to keep quiet disappear over the years. You know, the person they're afraid of may have moved away or people have something at stake because now they're a grown up with a job and they realize it's not worth it to, for me to cover this up anymore. I mean, that's what we found in in stories that uh, my husband Kevin and I have written about that take place in small towns is that that motivation to keep secrets kind of fades away over time. And that can really work in investigators favor. It can. It can. And you've heard about deathbed confessions where people just say, oh, I've, I've carried this secret my entire life um, and I'm, I need to get this off my chest. So there's that possibility. But these people that were witnessed what happened to Alonzo, they're still in their 30s. So that's a long way off a deathbed confession. Um, so we do hope that people feel guilty or feel responsible or think, what would I want to have happen if that were my child? Because these people that were at that party are having children of their own now. So how would they feel if this happened to them? You hope that that they come forward with a different, different awareness now that they're older than they were at the time of the party. So those sound like, you know, very concrete, potentially, uh, leads in the Ray Rivera and Alonzo Brooks case that are moving those cases forward. But you have some other cases in Volume one, including a case that took place in Europe, uh, the Xavier case, House of Terror. That's more of an international story. Any tips there? Because that one seemed to have a couple of uh, kind of concrete possibilities at the end of what could have happened. But then also this possibility that he just ran away. We have had more tips on the Xavier case than any of the other cases. Really? With Rivera, it was more social media and commentary and some tips, more engagement, I guess I would say, on the Rivera case. But on Xavier, these are actual tips that have come in, and they have come in from all over the world. Um, What's interesting about that case is that there were actually, there has actually been a cluster of tips that came in 
from the Chicago area. And when it's a wanted fugitive case like that, you're always looking for a, a cluster. And uh, there were some people who even sent some photos in of someone who looked very, very much like Xavier and who apparently speaks with a French accent. Um, so this is the only city, Chicago is the only city where they saw a cluster of tips, but then there've been clusters in different countries as well, like France and Italy and England. And there've been a lot of leads coming from Central and South America. So anyone in the Chicago area should keep their eyes open, I think, to see if they can recognize Xavier. Hmm. But those clusters are interesting and we're still getting tips on that case and we're forwarding those directly to, we've gotten over a hundred viable tips on the Xavier case. Wow. That's amazing. Now you have a couple of other cases here. I'm always curious when there's a story like uh, the Berkshires UFO story. Did you hear anything about that? Did anybody come forward and say, yeah, I saw something too? I think that Berkshire UFO case was probably the most surprising. We received emails from a lot of people who claimed to have seen the exact same craft on the exact same night as the witnesses in our episode. And their accounts, when you read them, are very, very credible. So those accounts back up what the witnesses in our episode saw. And we found that really fascinating and somewhat surprising because there were so many. What I really liked about that episode and found intriguing was that some of the witnesses aren't really friends. I mean, they're from the same area, but it's not like they've been collaborating on this story for decades. They have very similar accounts, but they've had some personal disagreement about participating in interviews and telling the story. And the motivation doesn't seem to be there for them to coordinate in any way, yet their stories really match up in terms of timeline and what they saw. I found that very interesting. Right. And all the feedback that we received from from comments substantiated that as well. When you have more people coming forward who saw the same thing or who say that their parents saw the same thing and that the parents came home and told them the story of what they had seen. It's very, they're very credible leads. So we know something was happening on September 1st, 1969 in the Berkshire area of mm. Massachusetts. Now, what about the Patrice Endress 13 Minutes case and the Lena Chapin missing witness case? Any viable tips on those cases? The tips for Patrice Endress have been going directly to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And we know they're working on with the tips and working on leads, but we don't know anything specific about those leads. And we also know that the authorities in, in Lena's case are working on tips, but we don't have any specifics about those either. Are you still in touch with any of the survivors of the crimes that you covered in Volume 1, friends, relatives, loved ones? Have they expressed any reaction to Volume 1 and the audience reaction to it? I have been in touch since the episodes premiered in July with a lot of the people who were involved in those episodes. And I think that, I guess the, the one common thought that they all have is that they're very, very happy that their stories were told. Mm. I think they feel that Netflix is about as good as it gets in terms of getting your story out there and having tips come in. And they feel it just makes them feel like they've done everything they possibly can to have their mystery solved. So everyone I've spoken to has just been very appreciative and, and happy that that they feel like they've done as much as they can, whether the case gets solved or not, that's out of their control. But they are very happy that they did this story. Let's talk about volume two, episode one, the Washington insider murder episode. This is John or Jack Wheeler's story. Really fascinating case. What went into the decision to cover this story? 
when we saw the surveillance footage of Jack Wheeler in the hours before his death, it was haunting. And then when we decided to start looking into that story, we realized who this man was. John Wheeler is an American hero. He dedicated his life to the American people, to serving the American people. And without John, the Vietnam Memorial would never have been built. And the fact that this man was murdered and his body was dumped in a landfill was just horrific to us. The details of his murder are really a, a true mystery because whoever killed John did not want his body to be found. Mm. And we want to find that person who killed John. This is not a, a typical mugging or a typical street assault. Somebody did not want his body to be found. And having been at that landfill and having seen how those bulldozers move the trash around and then compress the trash, it is just amazing that one of those bulldozer operators saw John's body on the top of this pile just as he was coming to move that trash. It's or or this would be a missing persons case. This would not be a murder case. John would have been buried in that landfill. So we um, really want to find whoever intentionally murdered John and dumped his body in that landfill. It is really fascinating cases. I think that it's very much open to interpretation, which is, I think, the hallmark of, you know, not just what makes the most interesting unsolved mystery in real life, but what makes some of the most interesting episodes of unsolved mysteries. There are so many threads here. You have a person who has a lifelong mental health condition that's treated. And there are signs that perhaps, you know, there may have been some lapse in the treatment or, you know, medication issues. And you sort of see him wandering around in the surveillance footage. There's a thread you could draw that he died by misadventure in some way, you know. And, and you know, I think that it's a tenuous thread. But then the evidence, the injuries that he had, the fact that his body uh, was found in this dumpster ultimately and, and in this landfill miles away from where he was last seen, it points to almost like a, an and story, not an either or. Like it doesn't have to be just one thing going on here. And that's what makes it so complicated, at least for me as a viewer. There are multiple threads in this story, and then there's so many small mysteries within the larger murder mystery. You know, they don't know for sure if his body was in a dumpster in Newark, hmm. Delaware. Because it was only or... a partial DNA match? Is that why they don't know for sure? Exactly. It was only oh, a partial okay. DNA match, and there isn't a lot of evidence. So they don't, nobody saw him in Newark. Delaware. Uh, there's no surveillance footage of him after he leaves the Nemours building. He just disappears and no one has come forward. Law enforcement worked very, very hard on this case. They brought in, because of John's high profile, they brought in all kinds of departments of investigators, but there were just no leads on this case. And so at a certain point, they, they don't have anything to go on. They don't have anything to, to work with. So the case goes cold. But I know his family, John's family, would very, very much like to have, have his killer brought to justice. It's interesting that you say that it's not certain that he was in that dumpster. I mean, that's that's a very interesting twist that I hadn't actually thought about watching the episode. You know, I think certainly all of the evidence much closer to their home in Delaware is 
really intriguing. I mean, the potential break-in, potential signs of a struggle, the issue across the street where there had been that smoke bomb, where his phone was found, um, you know, all the surveillance footage, him going into the pharmacy. He didn't call the police after this alleged break-in. It was the neighbor who reported it. And it really points to so many possibilities, but there are clues everywhere, right? There are. There are. And then the clues just stop. That one piece of video footage where you see him with a black hoodie uh, walking out, like, you know, with his hood up, like he's trying to disguise himself is intriguing. Did he feel like he was being followed? Was he hiding out in the Nemours building because he thought he was being followed um, and trying to figure out how to get back home? We just don't know what was going on in his head. But no matter what, he did not deserve to die the death that he did. Nobody would right. deserve to die that kind of death, not just John, but but anybody. It was a, a horrific, um, sad state of affairs. I mean, when I was watching it with my husband, we actually had a lot of disagreement about what could have happened here. You know, for him, it seemed more straightforward. Um, for me, I couldn't help but think of his job, of his career, of potentially people in the world, the global stage, who might want something bad to happen to him and the different ways that we know those operators behave on the global stage when it comes to taking down perceived enemies or getting information. There's just, it's such a rich, interesting, and and really a tapestry of a murder mystery. But yes, I keep coming back to his wife, Catherine, and his stepdaughter and just thinking, you know, it's been a decade this is a very high profile story and they are still seeking answers. They're just they just don't seem any closer than they were 10 years ago, right? I don't think that the investigators are much closer once the leads dried up, but that's the reason that the Wheeler family agreed to do this episode was because they really do want closure and they do want want answers after all these years and it's it's so common with all of these families on the stories that we profile. They just cannot let it go and cannot move on until they get that closure. The The nation needs closure, I think, on John Wheeler. Yes, he was very outspoken about cybersecurity, um, working with the government. He knew everyone in Washington, D.C., and was very, very well respected by everyone. Um, just a, an incredible man with an incredible reputation. Um, we just want to see if we can get this case solved. Yeah, it really struck me that some of the other people that are featured in the episode, not just his family, but, you know, prominent people in Washington also really, really want to solve this. I'm curious, Terry, what are you most excited about in putting Volume 2 out in the world? You know, when as we get closer to the premiere of Volume 2, we get excited that the viewers are going to see these stories, but I think we might get more excited about the idea of solving one or more of these stories. In Volume 2, we feel like there are some very solvable cases, and so we get very excited about that. Where's that lead going to come from? Where's that tip going to come from that would and could solve this case? So I think that's what we get the most excited about as we get closer to the premiere. Well, Terry Muir, I am hoping there's a lot of unsolved mysteries to come. Can you give me any hint as whether that might be the case? Are we in for the long haul here, you and me, with these unsolved mysteries? 
We would absolutely like to continue producing more of these cases. There's so many important cases and so many so many stories that need to be told and so many mysteries that need to be solved. I would like to do this until the day I die, honestly. <laughs> I uh, We've been doing this for 34 years now, trying to solve mysteries, and um, we will continue to do that as long as we possibly can. Well, that is great news for me. Thank you so much for talking with me again about Volume 1, about the new mysteries. I'm really looking forward to watching more. Thanks so much, Terry. Oh, thanks, Rebecca. Many thanks again to Unsolved Mysteries co-creator and executive producer Terry Dunn-Muir. Now, let's listen to a chat I had with my real-life partner in crime, my husband Kevin Flynn, where we go over our reactions to Washington insider murder and the mystery behind it. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Here we are, Unsolved Mysteries, Volume Volume 2. Yes. Episode 1, Washington Insider Murder. Mm -hmm. Will you help me just recap the case? Sure. It starts at a landfill in Delaware where they find a body of an older man. John Wheeler. John Wheeler. Also known as Jack, who is a real Washington insider. I mean, they immediately know there's something going on uh, with this body they find because they see the West Point ring, which they know is... Kind of a symbol of, of status in, in Washington, D.C. People don't walk around with that ring right. every day. Well, I mean, he's not a political animal. He's not a political advisor. He comes up through the military. He has He's an activist for uh, veterans in a lot of different administration positions. So he's that kind of political insider. Now, finding a body in a landfill, we're immediately reminded by the cops in the episode and also by our own kind of exposure to crime that... That is very often like sign of a hit, right? Um, but it turns out this body wasn't dumped yeah. in the landfill. It was brought there by a garbage truck. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it certainly looks like a, an attempt to hide the body one way or the other. So just talking about Jack Wheeler for a second, mm-hmm. really did have an extraordinary career. Right. Uh, worked in several White Houses, but was also the driving force behind the construction of the Vietnam War Memorial. Yeah, yeah. right, yeah. And we find out that throughout his life, despite all of his success, going to West Point, going to Harvard, going to Yale, that he suffered from bipolar disorder, which is a crippling mental illness, right. or can be. It, it, it is manageable, certainly with uh, with medicine. But, I mean, having gone through this uh, whole episode, it certainly played a role in what happened to him. And we start to get a sense that there's something more potentially going on here when we hear that the police are at the uh, what they think is the crime scene. They found the body in the landfill. And then they find out there's an investigation going on right now about a break-in. At That's Jack's nuts, house. right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the coincidence of that, that they are simultaneously one uh, law enforcement agency finds his body when another miles away has just been called to his house for a, a potential burglary. Now, we do hear from Robert. That's Jack's neighbor in yeah. Newcastle. Delaware. He was the one who thought there might be something going on at the house. He was there, you know, sometimes went in and, you know, took care of their house, maybe like watered their plants or whatever. He shows us how he walked in. And then we see these photos from the alleged break in. We see the comet on the floor. We see the West Point sword on the floor in the kitchen. Broken dishes. I never bought it. Broken dishes. I never bought it. What do you mean you never bought it? it? To me, it didn't look like a like a break in or Uh, vandalism. It looked like somebody had a fit of rage in a kitchen. To me, it looked like a struggle. It didn't look like a struggle to you? No. Huh. No. I. What made you think that it wasn't a struggle? Just, I can imagine somebody getting angry about something and uh, throwing things around. Hmm. That bare footprint. Yeah. Yeah. Just one. 
Just one. Yeah. I would imagine an intruder would not come into the house barefoot. Hmm. His decision not to clean it up, you know, he, if if he if there were a break in, I mean, we already know that hours later he's seen in all these other places. Right. I mean, I just, I I just never bought the idea that somebody broke in and then set all this stuff in motion. Hmm. So a couple of things happen that we, through the episode, has revealed to us kind of slowly. But yep. one of the things we find out is that he had been in this long-term dispute with a neighbor who was building a big house across the street from them. And his cell phone is found at the site of where a smoke bomb had been thrown into this construction site of this house. Mm-hmm. Jack also, in an email to his employer, claimed... That in the course of the break-in, his briefcase had been stolen and it contained his keys to get into the office, his pass card, uh, and his cell phone and his wallet. But his cell phone was found across the street at the smoke bomb site. What do you make of that? Well, I mean, one interpretation is that his briefcase was stolen and that somebody rummaged through it near the house and just tossed the, the cell phone but took the other stuff, the security card to get into the building at work. It lends uh, an aura of corporate espionage, mm. but again, I'm just not buying the idea that, that whoever crossed paths with Jack, I don't think it happened on the early side of this timeline. I think it happens later. Apparently, he arrives in Wilmington, I believe is where he took the train to, and like loses his car. He, he ends up uh, taking, you know, going to work and then going home and then has to walk to CVS after this alleged break-in and ask a stranger for a ride back to the parking garage. What did you make of that? Well, I mean, I think it was the first sign that there was something going on cognitively. Hmm. Or, you know, whether it was temporary or, or, you know, more serious. You know, some of the folks like to say, well, he's forgetful and he does that all the time, as if to say that wasn't a big deal. But we see our for ourselves in the surveillance video He's not acting like somebody who's like frustrated because he can't find his car. He's making furtive moves, and he seems to be peering around the corner at different things. That's later, though, because we yeah. do see him in the pharmacy, and he seems friendly. He's a familiar face right. there. Right, yep. But asking somebody in a pharmacy for a ride in mm-hmm. 2010 does seem to be an unusual thing to do, right? He doesn't have a cell phone to call anybody. Mm. For some reason, he you know found himself walking into a place that... People knew him. He didn't just lose his car. He went to the wrong place to find his car. Right. Yeah, and then he also has this conversation with the attendant about his briefcase was stolen. But, I mean, it doesn't matter. He's in the wrong place altogether, Mm. which, again, kind of leads us to saying, hmm, you know, there is just something going on with him at this moment. Look, there's there's a lot of times we've seen stories where the the victim has a, a mental illness and it has really nothing to do with the fact that they become victims or sometimes it's well you know police react differently because they think oh this might be somebody who's trying to hurt themselves but if he's in a fugue state i think we see the evidence of that i think it's relevant he has a bipolar disorder and that he's taking medication from we also know that sometimes you know even if you're taking the medication sometimes it it doesn't work we certainly know we can certainly assume that 3 days out after leaving his home He didn't take his medication with him. For that period of time. For that period of time, yeah. 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 So then we find out that they're able to trace Jack's body from that landfill to a specific garbage truck to a specific dumpster using DNA, which is 
incredible. Right. So the theory then is that perhaps he crawled into or was put into that dumpster. Right. And the garbage truck driver says that occasionally homeless people do crawl into those dumpsters for shelter and that when he lifts them up with his truck, somebody will hop out. And he was a holler. A holler. Hey, <laughs> hey, man, I'm here. Obviously, it seems like Jack was deceased at the time he was in that dumpster. Well, we don't know that. Well, the thing that is interesting is the coroner's report. Yeah. Which lists the manner of death as homicide and explains lots and lots and lots of injuries to Jack's body. Um, contusions, uh, fractured rib, lung collapsed, hemorrhage, external neck injury, laceration. The last time we see him, he's walking under that valet stand. And the mystery here is what happened between the last time we saw him and he ended up in that dumpster. Right. Do you have any theories about yeah, that? Yeah, well, let's talk first about you know the straightest line to that, which is that he crawled in himself. How did he get that town? I don't know. Again, it just it's one of the mysteries. The town right? was miles away. Yes. Miles away, Newark. Somehow he gets there. The straightest line is that he crawled in himself because it was nighttime and it was cold, and that he was alive when he got dumped in, and his injuries are a result from being crushed. By the rest of the garbage getting from that dumpster falling on top of him, hmm. um, you know, because if you're, I mean, can you imagine being buried under a bunch of debris? But the autopsy report isn't consistent with that. We hear that in the right. episode. Is it not? Okay, it was not consistent. He right. had, but uh, that is the straightest line. So yes. another way would be that he somehow was stuffed in there by a, th- a third party, hmm. right? But it wasn't a robbery. Look, if he is a little manic, he might end up appearing as a threat to the wrong person. If he stumbles into an alley and there's somebody there and, and he, he comes off like a you know a raging grizzly bear because uh, he, it might force somebody to defend themselves or he may come off like an easy mark and like here's somebody we can have a little violent fun with. So somebody else could have stuffed him in. Hmm. There are some inconsistencies with that. The first is he had money and jewelry right. on him. Yeah. Valuable. Right. Uh, so the idea that he was killed in a robbery or a mugging, not likely. Right. There are also inconsistencies around the location, how he ended up going from Wilmington to Newark, or did somebody bring him or bring his body from Wilmington to Newark? And typically, in a random attack, a random attacker wouldn't then transport or hide a body, maybe just leave it where it fell, or maybe, you know, tuck it way back, but not go through the trouble of, okay, I've run into this guy, I randomly attacked him, I accidentally killed him or killed him on purpose, now I'm going to take his body all the way to this dumpster and put it in. That seems like an inconsistency. Right, it would probably have to be near the dumpster if there was, say, like an attack. Right. So there is a more kind of out there thing for me hanging over this. Yeah. And it's not an either or, it might be an and. Was something off with him for purely medical reasons or was something off with him because there were maybe medical reasons and something else going on. Was his behavior perhaps tied to, you know, a spiraling maybe because of medication and his mental illness Mm -hmm. combined with a real threat that maybe he had an altercation in his home. Maybe he was desperate to find his car so he could get back to his wife, Catherine. Maybe he hid in that building because he knew people were after him. And maybe whoever was after him ultimately caught up with him. So can I answer as a fan? Sure. Not as an investigator or a journalist or anything like that? Sure. I'm not buying it. No, really? No, no, I'm not. I mean, I believe that you're right. Two things could be true. Mm. One thing could be true that he was having a mental health crisis. If we see his actions on that video, 
if we work backwards and forwards in time, if you work backwards, if he was in the state where he could just wander around and sleep in a basement and spend hours there, then it seems very likely that he could have done this smoke bomb attack at, you know, on the neighbor who he was having a conflict with. And it seems like if you go forward from there, he definitely could be in a position where he would not be able to take care of himself and defend himself and look out for his best interests on the street. But I have a counterpoint to Okay. That. We know he was working at a firm that was working on counterintelligence mm-hmm. and technology. Yeah. Would it not be an effective way to steal information, because there is, by the way, the big piece here is the missing briefcase. Mm-hmm. Would it not be an effective way to steal information and perhaps take out somebody who knew you were stealing information by making it appear as though they had had a mental health crisis, using some of his personal details against him, like the dispute with the neighbor, and you know maybe switching his medication with something that wasn't effective to make it appear as though he had spiraled into a crisis and died by misadventure. Would that not be something that we have seen in something like the Americans and that mm. we know is a tactic sometimes? Mm. I mean, we've seen now uh, yeah, poisonings. I mean, you mean as opposed to hacking Correct. That seems to be the easy way. So what do you think happened to the briefcase? Oh, I think he just lost it. Hmm. The briefcase never turns up. But if, if somebody is stealing that briefcase because they want his security card, hmm. it's telling me that this high-tech security firm doesn't know who's used that card hmm. in the weeks and months Might after not have been the card. All of his other clearance stuff was in there, too, we heard. All right. Well, this is a real mystery. Yes. You know, despite the fact that you think This maybe, was a good one. Yeah, I thought this episode was excellent. And despite the fact that maybe you are not quite buying as many of the conspiracies as I may be buying... I think that we agree there's a real mystery here. There is. I think it's likely he met somebody along the way. Hmm. But I'm also very, you know, I'm not convinced that he didn't just crawl in that dumpster himself and was killed and was the blunt force trauma came from riding a a dumpster into a garbage masher, you know? Hmm. I don't buy it. You don't buy it. It's my turn to not buy it. All right, Kevin. I guess you're going to have to talk to somebody about this. I am. Well, thank you very much for talking to me about this episode. I look forward to talking to you about the next one. Thanks again to Kevin Flynn for joining me. You are my favorite person to watch Netflix with. Kevin's an Emmy Award-winning former TV journalist, my true crime co-author, and the co-host of our other true crime podcast, Crime Writers On. He also hosts the podcast, These Are Their Stories, the Law and Order podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Episode 1 director, Don Argot. Don, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much for having me. I would like to know about your personal history with Unsolved Mysteries. Have you been a fan? I was a fan of the show for sure. I, um, you know, I grew up in the seventies and eighties, and uh, and I think I, I don't know exactly when the show premiered, but I always it was kind of ubiquitous. It was always kind of like there. I, I always remember watching it. Um, you know, it was on network television and the great reenactments and stuff like that. And uh, my former business partner actually was in one of those reenactments, I think in like uh, to, in the early, the late 90s or early 2000s. Huh. Yeah. So I, I always. Where did he play in the reenactment? He played like a abusive, potentially homicidal boyfriend, if mm. I remember correctly. Wow. <laughs> well, how did you become involved with uh, this volume of the series? Yeah, so um, our agent at WME had uh, reached out to us and said that they were doing a, a reboot of 
Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix, and they were looking to kind of revamp the show and you know, obviously still keep a lot of the core things that people loved about the show, but I'll bring it into kind of like the 21st century with, you know, with documentaries being so prevalent and, you know, maybe taking a different approach and how they would go about doing um, the recreations and things like that and making more like an elevated documentary thing that would be more uh, like one episode would be, you know, about the case as opposed to, you know, multiple stories in one show. So um, that's how it was positioned to us. And, and uh, I, I really obviously loved the idea of being a part of the show and, and directing an episode. And uh, this is the one because I'm, I'm based in Philadelphia and um, this story happens in Delaware, which is, you know, about uh, less than an hour away. So that's uh, so it was a great fit. Yeah, you got a doozy of a case to cover here, the the John Wheeler case, uh, or otherwise known as Jack, Jack Wheeler. Yeah. There's a lot going on in this episode and a lot going on in this case, but I just want to ask you about the art of it for a minute, mm-hmm. because you talked about recreations a second ago. Here, you actually have our victim, John Wheeler, on surveillance footage throughout the episode. You're able to kind of retrace the last few hours of his life, the last couple of days when he sort of pops in and out of these views of the camera. What did you think about weaving that footage in to an otherwise kind of straight narrative story? It added like a lot of suspense and real time feel to the episode, don't you think? Yeah, I do. I do think so. And I think that's where the the nice thing and for this particular episode, I think, um, you know, for this reboot, they really obviously are leaning on the recreations and kind of the stylized photography of, um, you know, the within the show itself. But it's always great uh, from a documentary standpoint when you have the actual footage um that's always way better than you know someone reimagining it or re-envisioning what it was and we actually did try to do we did a fair amount of stuff in the Nemours building with our kind of lookalike guy that we were mimicking you know some of the places he was walking down the hallways and shooting it our way they didn't end up using a lot of that stuff because I think when you have the real thing you don't really need to dramatize it and uh yeah that was that was I think what is so interesting about the story is that, you know, the more these pieces you see, the less sense it makes. It's almost better off when you don't have these fragmented pieces and you can kind of fill in the blanks. When you have these like very like, you know, very short pieces of him in the convenience store or him in the Nemours building or him walking the streets of Delaware, just these little snippets, the story starts to make less and less sense of what the hell happened, you know? So it's a frustrating story uh, because you want to, as somebody from the outside, look at the evidence as it's presented, just like, you know, an investigator would and see everything for what it is and be like, all right, well, this makes sense why this happened here. And then he ends up over here and that kind of makes sense. And then we see him over here and that makes sense but the more you see of this these snippets kind of the less sense the whole story ends up making so no I completely agree and I think that you know in watching the episode with my husband Kevin and we talked about it earlier in this episode in our recap we interpreted the scenes in the episode very differently and we interpreted the evidence very differently and I want to ask you about a couple of things because 
One of the big plot twists here is that, you know, Jack's body is discovered in this landfill and the investigators find out there's a simultaneous investigation going on of a break-in at his home mm-hmm. that apparently he didn't report, but his neighbor did. And then we see the photos of the kitchen and how they looked as a crime scene. We see the comet on the floor, the footprint, the broken dishes, the spices everywhere. The sword. I see that as a sword, exactly. I saw that on first blush as signs of a struggle. My husband saw it as somebody in a, in a rage, you know, in their own sort of emotional moment, throwing things. What do you see when you look at that scene? I saw it as somebody that was unhinged. Mm. And that's only because I think if you looked at it without understanding the case, you would jump to the conclusion that it was a break-in or a struggle or there's something else going on there. But I think when you start to look at all the pieces of the puzzle that are available to us, and obviously there are a lot of missing pieces, um, when you start to look at them for what they are, the thing that you do want, because you, you do naturally want to come to some kind of conclusion on why he was acting the way he was, right? Mm. Because yep. because that is the thing that makes kind of the least amount of sense. You know, we, we track where he goes from New York to, to D.C. to Newcastle to Wilmington. So within all the, like, retracing his steps, you start to try to put together uh, an overall picture of, like, what may have happened. And clearly knowing, you know, that he was bipolar and there was a chance that he had an episode, whether that was his medication was off or he forgot to take his medicine, whatever. And then, you know, when his wife and stepdaughter say that he was directionally challenged, those things start to make some sense of like seeing him flustered and walking around the parking garage, not knowing, but like, why does he not have a shoe on? Like, right. the, the, you know what I mean? Like, so there's every, every one of the, 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 the pieces of the puzzle when you think like, oh, well, this is, he's off his meds clearly. And the, but then why wouldn't he have a shoe on? Like, right. And, and why was he off time. his meds? Right. And, right. Ever... and why are you off your meds? And then why and then why would you go to the trouble of tearing your place apart and then clearly being involved in the house next door with setting off a flare thing and then his cell phone's found in the air? Like, but then the thing that is puzzling about the about the story within all that is that he had enough presence of mind to email his employer right. and say that his house was broken into, he lost his badge, he lost his cell phone. Like, so there's, there's an element of, um, premeditation. Right. Right. So there, there's, there's, you're not totally out of it because if you were just this wild animal, like, you know, flipping out in your kitchen and smashing dishes and stuff and going on a rampage across the street to, you know, try to burn the house down across the street, you wouldn't necessarily have a moment of clarity within all that. And then write an email to your employer saying these things are lost, but then not call the police. Right. About a well, that was a question I, I had, because in the interviews with his wife, Catherine, and his stepdaughter, you know, they talk about him being directionally challenged, but they also talk about him being warm and smart and caring. And, you know, ha- they had all those routines around the holidays and their family. Right. Did you get any indication in the interviews with them, that there had been episodes like this previously? I mean, they, they do describe him as getting very passionate about things that he cares a lot about, like the house across the street. That was something he was very angry about and passionate about, right? right? Jack liked being there. He liked being in Newcastle a lot. It was quiet, and it was old-fashioned, and Jack was sort of old-fashioned. 
we were both very unhappy about the house going up across the street. And he was very fired up about it. He got it into his head that this can't happen. This is a sacrilege. And bipolar disorder can make you more emotional and illogical. No, and I, and I think he was, you know, as, as somebody who is clearly struggling with a disorder, you know, there's probably a level of intensity no matter what. You know, he seemed like, mm. a, he seemed like a very serious guy. I mean, you don't get to the positions that he, he held with being kind of like a jokester, like, you know, kind of freewheeling type of guy. He's probably a very serious, intense guy who is very focused and knowing that, he was so committed to the Vietnam Memorial and, you know, veterans' causes and things like that. You can see how the house being built across the street in a, something that he saw as, like, probably a very, you know, kind of disgraceful injustice, right? Mm. To, like, this is sacred land. This is, this is not cool. These are people that have figured out a way around the system, and I'm not happy with it. Um, you know, so that, so that when, when you are that kind of person that won't let things like that go, that tells you about their personality. Right. To a degree. But a smoke bomb? I mean, that does seem like <laughs> maybe not exactly in line with a straight-laced guy who has a security clearance and has been the advisor to several presidential administrations, totally. right? And that's, and that's where every, the more information that you have for the story, the less sense right. it starts to make you know you start pulling all these threads and you know you think that there have been other episodes where i think uh, of 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 the show in in the season that you know it's pretty apparent what the situation is or or what who the who the culprit is right but for mm-hmm. this there's so many more questions than there are answers when you start pulling all the threads so which is right. ma- is what makes it a great episode and a great story and somebody knows something right i mean always yes. Well, that's the thing, is that I think that who he was and what he did for a living, especially what he did for a living at the time of his death, for me, adds a layer of mystery. Mm -hmm. Listen, I am not a conspiracy theorist, but I did watch every single episode of The Americans, right? And so (laughs) I do have this, you know, part of me wonders, like, why did he, if he went off his medication or if his medication was messed up, like, why? Uh, would it not be a really credible way to take somebody down or take somebody out and have it look like a manic episode or a bipolar episode? I mean, is there or maybe it was uh, an either or or and situation like maybe he there was something off with him and maybe somebody wanted to cause him harm. Both things could potentially be true, even though it would be a coincidence. And and so my question for you is, you know, we see this in the surveillance footage. We see him change clothes at one point into that mysterious hoodie, yeah. which who knows where he got it from. <laughs> um, he is acting as if, take, the, take what you know about his medical condition out of the frame. Mm-hmm. He's not inconsistently acting with somebody who thinks somebody might be after him, right? Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you just talk about that a little bit and make me feel a little bit better about my thinking that that could be the case? Yeah, no, I think absolutely. And and that's why I think that there's no one way that there's not one conclusive thing that I can sit here and say or that, you know, you watching the episode can say, oh, this is definitely clearly what happened. Like Mm. that's that there there are no there are no one there isn't one theory or even two or three theories that necessarily when you kind of follow them on to their natural conclusion really give a satisfying answer, right? And so, 
yeah, he definitely feels like he is paranoid. He is certainly off. You know, when you the, the parking garage footage, I think, is probably the most, uh, you know, kind of upsetting or telling of uh, this guy who, like, is clearly um, lost. I mean, he's lost. Mm. But he's mm. also he's frazzled, he's unsettled. And there's this feeling of, you know, he's, he, 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 there's paranoia there for sure. Now, whether that's real or, you know, just like any conspiracy thing, you know, somebody who thinks that they're being followed, that isn't being followed. That's a thing too, you know, having, Mm -hmm. having just being a paranoid person, but yeah, there, there are so many things. Like if you were to take the, the theory that the work that he was doing for the government, uh, somehow, you know, say he was going to leak information and they knew he was going to leak information. So they figured out would have to figure out a way to kind of, you know, silence him in some way. If you go and that's sure that if you take that as a theory and say that is a plausible theory, but then you'd have to take the events that happened between the 28th and the 31st. Mm. And for all of those things to have transpired the way they did doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because he's in. He he goes from New York to Washington to Newcastle and then tries to get a ride into Wilmington. And that is weird in itself to go into a pharmacy. Like, I don't know about you, but I would ask for a ride. Yeah, yeah. I, I would never ask for a ride to strangers in, in, in some rando pharmacy in Delaware. Um, right. So that seemed weird. So everything about this, when you start like thinking it through, you know, like if somebody wanted you offed, or, or or silenced in some ways, you'd think, you know, and this is obviously the, the you know the kind of spy thriller you know version of the story. Like there are easier ways, right, to right. to to make that happen. Uh, and this seems like a very convoluted way to have made that happen. But nonetheless, it's it's as plausible as any other theory that anybody could throw out there potentially. Right. What was the reason that he gave his family for leaving early to go back to Washington D.C.? Um, that's a good question. I don't know that, know that there was a definitive answer. I mean, I think he, part of his life and his work was, um, you know, he had to go and do stuff. You know, I think that Mm. there was this feeling of like, I gotta go, I got and and he had that kind of relationship with his wife that she expected, like, I think she was upset that he left in the time, you know, in the during the holidays, like what could have been that important that you have to be, you know, why can't it wait, especially when, you know, it's the family being together and all that kind of stuff. But a lot of it doesn't add up. Right. Probably the biggest thing that doesn't add up in the whole story, and no matter whether or not you believe, as it sounds like you sort of lean toward the medical, a lot of the medical reasons for his behavior here and and what, what happened to him before he was found. So the real mystery, whether or not you believe that or whether or not you believe something more conspiratorial, is what happened to him between the time he was last sighted on that final surveillance footage frame and when his body was found in the landfill with injuries that were inconsistent with being put in a dumpster and dumped into a garbage truck with injuries that looked a whole lot like he had been beaten, perhaps choked, the lacerations. I'm like looking at all of the words that were in that yep. coroner's report. Yep. How did he get in that landfill in Wilmington? And what happened to him in between? And he hadn't been mugged, at least not for a robbery, because he had money and a Rolex on right, him. Right. So how do you explain that? <laughs> I wish I could explain it. I, pr- I would have put it in the <laughs> mystery solved. It, it wouldn't have been an unsolved mystery, right? <laughs> yeah. No, it doesn't. That's that's uh, 
that is the million dollar question, right? There is there that is the big that the gap there. Like what, clearly something happened between potentially getting in a cab. There was eyewitnesses that said that they saw him get into a cab. Uh, but then that was potentially, you know, disputed that may that maybe that wasn't as reliable uh, information. Um, to me, it seems like the what happened in that window is he he was attacked. You know, there was mm. an, some level of an altercation. Now, whether that was, you know, kind of premeditated and or something that just happened because um my one theory that I had in just thinking through like what could have happened is did he wander into a bad part of town with uh, and got mouthy with some people and didn't back down and uh, an altercation, you know, went too far uh, and they beat him so severely and then, you know, accidentally killed him and then threw him into a dumpster Uh you know that's that sounds as good as, as as what I can think of what what happened because everything up until that point, unless there was as as you're indicating that there's this paranoia and there's this level of kind of hiding out downstairs in the Nemours building um, and kind of wandering around and trying to wait something out. Um, one of the things that really bugged me is that you know it is 2010 and yes, he lost his phone. But you can still access telephones, right? You know, right. so at the pharmacy, right? He could have asked to use the phone, right? There's the pharmacy. The There's ways to people. You know, it's not like it was you know 1987 and people didn't have you know you had to knock on somebody's door to use their phone. But even then, there's payphones on the street, so that didn't sit well with me. That like there wasn't a way for him to reach anybody. He feels mm. very much like, and this is what we tried to embrace in a lot of the, you know, kind of the recreation stuff that we shot. This this guy who's just, you know, alone in this big city with no one around him. And it's tragic. It's just, it's tragic what happened. And clearly he met some kind of really terrible end. Uh, and it, was, it wasn't, mm. uh, you know, whether, whether it was something that uh, an altercation that got out of control and went too far or somebody that was waiting for him and he knew he was, you know, going to, you know, fall into that situation. Uh, I don't know. But as I think his stepdaughter says in the beginning, you know, throwing somebody into a dumpster and knowing that they're going to end up in a landfill is like, you know, wanting to make sure that like no one finds the body. Right, right. Don, is there anything that you shot for the episode that you had to cut that you wished viewers could know about? Well, there was an amazing moment that I, I kept advocating for to be put into the show. We were filming in downtown Wilmington, and there was a bodega that we were filming uh, across the street from. And there was this black guy that had out of the blue started singing Amazing Grace in this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful voice. And we were like... Holy shit, we gotta we gotta shoot this. So like, and of course because you don't want to like you know shoot something and not be able to use it, you know we we approached the guy and said who we were and what we were doing and asked him if um, he would be willing to sing it for us on camera, and he did, and it was really really beautiful. And I always felt like that could have been somewhere in the episode because what I found out when we finished shooting that particular you know little moment i saw terry was kind of like you know she's she was like affected by it um it seemed a little bit like um getting choked up and i walked over and asked her if she was okay and she said 
she said, actually, that was one of Jack's favorite songs. Hmm. Now, you did spend time with Jack's family, obviously, in creating this episode. And I have to wonder, you know, kind of seeing up close how his death has affected them and how they feel about it. How hopeful are you that this episode actually brings some closure to this case, gets us closer to knowing what happened to John Wheeler? That's the beauty of Unsolved Mysteries, right? Uh, Especially having so many people that um, are invested in these stories. And as we, we know, there are people out there that know what happened. You know, maybe there's one person, maybe there's two people, maybe there's 10 people, who knows? But the pressure that a show like this can... Uh, put on people to maybe be a little bit more compelled to speak out where they didn't have that reason prior um, is great. So we'll see. You know, I, I hope that the family does get closure. I don't think having the episode in the world is enough. Obviously, the story is the story with 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 no resolution to it. I don't think that gives closure. Um, but uh, I think maybe gives a little bit of meaning into Jack's life and what he accomplished and who he was. He was silly and fun and kind and it made you feel good to be around him because of how remarkable he was and how full of love. He he cared very deeply about everything he did and took took it to heart. He had the largest heart of anyone I know. And for that, maybe that's something that's important for the family. But I think like anybody in their situation, they're not going to feel closure until, you know, at least find out what happened. Because I, I can't imagine that not being this thing that gnaws at them all the time, you know, like because it was so mysterious the way uh, the events in which everything unfolded and to not know what happened, um, you know, it's clearly not going to bring Jack back. But I think we'll go a long way to at least, you know, kind of close a chapter um, where there's still a lot of questions. Well, Don, the episode is so strong and the case is just presented so well that I think a lot of us want to know what happened. Thank you so much for talking to me about this episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. We have reached the end of You Can't Make This Up. Many thanks again to Terry Dunmuir and Don Argot. Fans of Unsolved Mysteries might remember these words from the late and irreplaceable former host of the show, Robert Stack. For every mystery, someone somewhere knows the truth. Perhaps that person is someone listening. Perhaps it's you. If you or someone you know has any information about the death of John Wheeler, go to unsolved.com to share your story or to learn more about the hundreds of other mysteries covered by the series. And for more of my takes on true crime and how we cover it in the media, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On, a true crime review. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please subscribe to, rate, and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 2, Episode 2, Death in Oslo. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hans Dale Sue. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.